to the 28 Ales Later podcast. My name's Steve Wharton. Together with Natalie Wilson and some guest presenters too, we're embarking on a journey around the north of England, celebrating its landscape and heritage. If you look at a map of Britain, there's an area at the top of England and the south of Scotland that seems to defy definition. Does England really stretch this far north of Carlisle? beyond Hadrian's Wall, snaking sharply northeast, up and up, until it meets Berwick-upon-Tweed. This is the borders, the so-called debatable lands, that have passed back and forth between England, Scotland and their preceding kingdoms over many, many centuries. Armies would pass through from the north or the south, acquisitioning goods and pillaging crops to sustain the troops. The local families became very close-knit and independent, and when they felt that they had had everything taken from them, they rode out to take it from others. Cattle, chiefly, the best prize in this shallow-soiled landscape, where crops were hard to establish. But the borderers' activity was much more far-ranging as we delve into history. The heartland ran along the modern border of England and Scotland, but in the old ballad, Johnny Armstrong, the eponymous borderer is said to live the high life in Westmoreland, an old county which reached only as far north as the outskirts of Penrith. There dwelt a man in Westmoreland, John Armstrong men did him call. He had neither lands nor rents coming in, yet kept eight score men in his hall. News was brought unto the king that there was such a one as he. That lived like a bold outlaw and robbed all the north country. The king he writ a letter then, a letter both large and long. It signed it with his own fair hand and promised to do Johnny no wrong. When this letter came to John, his heart was blithe as birds on the tree. Never was I sent for before any king, my father, grandfather, or me. Alas, it was all a trick. The King of Scotland had Johnny Armstrong and his men executed. But for some, hanging wasn't retribution enough for the raids and terror the Reaver families had inflicted on the borderlands. Gavin Dunbar, Archbishop of Glasgow, issued a curse against the Reavers and their families and their livestock in 1525. Priests were ordered to read it aloud to their congregations in the afflicted areas. I curse the heed and all the hears on the heed. I curse the face, the eye, the mouth, the nose, the tongue, the teeth, the crag, the shoulders, the breast, the heart, the stomach, the back, the womb, the arms, the legus, the handus, the feet, and every part of the body from the top of the heap to the soil of the feet. In 2000, the curse was inscribed round and round a five-foot-high stone, which sits in the underpass between Carlisle Castle and the city's museum, Tully House. Many claimed that the cursing stone itself has brought bad luck to the city and campaigned to have it removed. Callow Castle is inextricably linked with the Reaver story, not least for being the main detention centre for captured borderers. Another Armstrong, William, or Kinmont Willie, 
is also immortalised in song, in a ballad recounting his wrongful incarceration and gallant rescue by the bold Buccleuch. Have you not heard of the false O'Calder? Have you not heard of the King Lord's group? Have they taken bold Kinmon Willie? On Harrowby Fair to hang him up. Had Willie had but twenty men, but twenty men as stout as he. For Selk had never the Kinmon taken with eight score in his company. They banned his legs beneath the steed, they tied his hands behind his back. They guarded him five some on each side, and they brought him o'er the little rack. They led him through the little rack, and also through the Carlisle sands. They brought him to the Carlisle castle to be at my Lord Scrub's commands. My hands are tied, but my tongue is free, and who will dare this deed? A vow or answer by the board, a law or answer to the bold Becklow. Now hold thy tongue, thou rank reaver, there's never a Scot shall set thee free. Before ye cross my castle yet, I'll trow ye shall take farewell of me. Fear ne ye that, my lord, quo Willie, by the faith of my body, Lord Scrup, he said, and never yet lodged in a hostelry, but appeared my loin before I get. Now word is gained to the bald keeper in Branksome Hall, where he lay, that Lord Scrup has taken Kinmont Willie between the hours of night and day. Now I'm not exactly sure how many verses of this song there are, but I think it's too many to include in a short podcast like this. So let's crack on. The Border families were not always at odds with the powers that be, for providing good service to Henry VIII in the wars with Scotland, and for maintaining five horsemen, Kinmont Willie's father, Alexander, was given land taken from Calder Abbey during the dissolution of the monasteries. The land was at Gilcrooks, now called Gilcrews, in the northwest of Cumbria, and coincidentally, where a friend of mine lives. David Watson is the village blacksmith, so I took the opportunity to talk to him, and also another smith called Alex, who was visiting from Cramlington in the northeast. So what weapons would the reavers have been using? Whatever they could get their hands on. They were very clannish and family-based. They were a bit like later versions of the Vikings, where they repurposed a lot of farm equipment. Axes, scythes, sickles, whatever they could. Hello, weapons, yeah. really, sort of thing. That stuff that's been handed down through the families. It's like, what we got? How can we make it mm. more kiddy? <laughs> you can hear the rest of that interview with David and Alex in a bonus podcast. David was right. The Reavers did use whatever came to hand, and out of necessity modified or made weapons. This is borne out by reports that of all the booty that they carried off in raids, none was more prized than iron. Well, I think it's about time to go for a walk. So let's head to the Reaver heartland. Took a little while to drive here, but I'm here at the Butterburn Flow. It's one of the largest border mires, and it's a blanket bog, literally covering the ground like a wet blanket. And because there's very little artificial drainage, it stays that way throughout the year, sustaining an abundance of sphagnum moss. 
over thousands of thousands of years, the, the sphagnum moss has, has accumulated, rising into huge peat domes. It's reckoned that more than 90% of the UK's bogs have been destroyed or damaged, and the, the remaining 6,000 hectares are, are important, not least because raised bogs are able to retain excessive amounts of rainwater and then release it gradually, which helps to stop flooding. So Butterburn is managed jointly by Cumbria and Northumberland Wildlife Trusts. According to their websites, local and rare plant species include great sundew, tall bog sedge, and I'm hoping it's not too late to catch another plant that grows here. I'm off in search of cranberries. Well, you've got to pick your knees up to walk through this, I tell you. It really does feel remote. It's a wonderful feeling. It's vast. There's no sound except occasional gunfire from the firing range at Spade Adam. And that's about it. It's almost a bit of uh, sensory deprivation, to be honest. You'll find me up here in years to come, having gone mad. Another thing that strikes me is there's not much in the way of smells up here. Now it's a, an early autumn day. I think there's been frost overnight, but there's nothing showing now. There's just nothing. So like with the sound, the lack of sound, I should say. It's a lack of smell. All you've got is the wind brushing your face. The occasional soggy touch on your leg. And just this vast blue sky. So I'm setting my sights on cranberries, which is the American name really, given when European settlers thought the flower and stem resembled the neck, head and bill of a crane. So from Craneberry we get Cranberry. The original British name for both native varieties that we have is Fenberry, because the plant grows in marshes, sometimes called fens. Now the landscape looks a bit different to how it would have been when the reavers were uh, in full swing. For one, there's lots of forestry commission land. So if you take away those trees, you, you take away some of the, the features of the landscape and what you'd be left with is you've got something that will be very easy to get lost in. Now the nearest feeling I've had to walking through this moss is actually growing up around Morecambe Bay and going out onto the sands a little bit further then you know you should do. Every now and again your foot doesn't come with you when you try and take the next step <laughs> and you're struggling, it's like, come on you bugger! And you know that if you do it too quick you're gonna lose your shoe. So you've just got to try and coax it out just so, just so, so that you can keep on going. Oh yeah, I'm coming across a, a network of streams under me now. That's, that's not helping any. But I'm nearly at Calf Hill. I think I've found some cranberries already. It looks like the ones that are buried amongst the sphagnum moss have been protected. Um, there's a couple of little ones that still still look quite juicy, but then the ones that are up on top, quite a lot of them, all look like they've been freeze-dried. They've got a quite a nice orangey, orangey colour.
but I shall push on to see if I can find any more. Well, I've honestly got no idea what the different kinds of mosses are up here, but there's some that looks quite different to the sphagnum moss tufts, and not least because it's a... Well, there's one patch here, which is uh, peachy. It looks very wet. Um, and then there's another patch that's got more of a, a rose kind of tone to it. And it's quite in contrast to the... Yeah, the fir trees, oh, I'm getting a bit of a wet foot there. Um, the fir trees and the heather, because it is so wet and so low down. It's um, almost like looking at uh, life on a coral reef. I suppose it is that wet. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if there's some amphibious creatures up here. It is boggy. Because of the abundance of sphagnum moss, these areas often just get called the mosses. And it was mastery over the area, knowledge of the tracks and hideouts that earned the reavers another name, moss troopers. The moss troopers act in 1662 was passed to deal with the re-emergence of border troublemakers, noting that the moss troopers had been a long running problem. Earlier in the century, the expulsion of many reaver families to Northern Ireland had only been a short-term solution. Then in 1666, an update of this act meant that thieves and raiders in Northumberland and Cumberland could be tried and sentenced to be transported to America, there to remain and not to return. This is quite an alien landscape to me. It's beautiful, it really is. And the, the river is just slowly meandering its way down towards Gilsland. Um, there's been trouble recently because of the number of people not able to go abroad. Obviously they've stayed, stayed in Britain and then brought themselves en masse and with their barbecues and bottles and everything like that up to Crammel Lynn, which is on the River Irthing, just a little bit further down. And uh, unfortunately, they, they've trashed it a few times. You know, turned a beauty spot into a complete eyesore. So the MOD has uh, had the road closed for a couple of 28-day stints. And I think that they're now going for an 18-month ban on cars um, coming up. Unless they're visiting Butterburn Flow. Um, which, which I can highly recommend. Right, this feels slightly more like normal walking. I'm just going up the hill, up Calf Hill, which I think is about, oh, maybe a good seven metres above the rest of it. Oh, getting a bit dizzy with the altitude. Um, but it's just like walking through long grass now, really, feeling a lot firmer underneath. And uh, I should soon be able to survey what's on the other side. Hello, Mr. Leech. There we go. See, I knew there was water creatures around as well. Just on the edge of Cumbria and uh, Cumbria, the Lake District, was one of the chief grounds where you could buy your medicinal leeches from. Lads would go and stand in the lakes, in the tarns, and just wait until a few leeches got themselves attached. And then they'd uh, just wait just wait until a few of them dropped off because if you pull them off you can 
rip the rip the jaws out and that's no good for you your quacks and your, your practitioners they wanted to pay for a full leech so that they could bleed their patients it's a really evocative landscape you can imagine it at different times of day and certainly when the sun's gone down and the reavers are picking their way through the mosses just by the moonlight. That's where we get the term moonlighting from. And blackmail, that comes from a kind of protection racket um, that they were running. Greenmail was tax paid for land that you, that you rented, whereas blackmail was what you paid the reavers so that they didn't come and rob you in the night. There's an account in a book called Lakeland and the Borders of Long Ago by W.T. McIntyre which gives a feel for what the reavers would have been taking. Richard and William Armstrong, the Queen's tenants in Gilsland, accuse Watt of Harden, young Whitaw, John and Gib Elliot, and others of running a day foray with 400 men, arrayed in a most warlike manner, taking 300 cow and oxen, 20 horses and other animals, and burning 20 houses taking and burning gold money, apparel, etc., worth £400, and mutilating many of them. Gilsland developed as a result of the end of the lawlessness that had characterised the borders for hundreds of years. When King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England too, it was necessary for the border areas to be cleaned up, to allow safe transit for the king and all who wished to travel and trade between the independent yet newly united countries. So what's the legacy of the Reavers? Their names and descendants live on. Not just around this area, but across the world. The diaspora that began as expulsion to plantations in Ireland later took the Reaver family names to America, Australia and even the Moon. For a few days anyway. They've also left behind a wonderful collection of words from their exploits. Blackmail, bereaved, moonlighting, and of course, what classic folk rock album would have been complete without a galloping border ballad? Another gentler folk song is said to come from yet one more member of the infamous Armstrong family. According to Sir Walter Scott, on a dreary night in 1601, Thomas Armstrong composed a poem known as Armstrong's Good Night, the night before he went to face the justice of the gallows pole for the murder of Sir John Carmichael, Warden of the Marches. Many writers, including Robbie Burns, have adapted and added to it over the years until it's assumed its modern form, known as the parting glass. So whether your tipple is whiskey or cranberry juice, here's to the reavers and to the borders. For here I grant some time I spent In loving kind good company For all offences I repent And wisheth now forgiven to be For what I've done for want of wit, the memory now I can't recall. 
I hope you are my friends as yet. Good night, and God be with you all. Thank you for listening to the 28 Days Later podcast.